Listener Production. This episode contains stories about some of the work Liz has done on 60 Minutes, which have brief mentions of distressing content relating to murder, sexual assault and severe bodily harm. Liz Hayes has graced our television screens for more than four decades. Millions of Australians kicked off their weeks with Liz co-hosting Channel 9's Today Show and now, for over 25 years, have settled into their Sunday nights to watch her investigative journalism on 60 Minutes. I'm Elizabeth Hayes. You realise you're wanted in Australia? And that's the power of 60 Minutes sometimes. We captured Australia's most wanted man. As a young girl, I watched with bright eyes the way she interviewed Afghani warlords, movie stars and politicians, imagining myself one day doing the same thing. So today I get to interview the lady who I watched for decades on my TV, who inspired me to ask questions with dignity and grace. In the conversation that follows, we discuss what it was like to sit with some of the world's most dangerous people in conflict zones, how she navigated some of her toughest interviews, what makes a good question, and why sometimes the hardest stories to tell are your own. It is a story that I never expected I would have to tell. And when I say have to tell, I felt I had to tell it. And the reason I felt I had to tell it was not just because this happened to my dad. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is a life of greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Liz Hayes is the author of the new memoir, I'm Liz Hayes. Essentially, this conversation highlights the power of storytelling and the wisdom that is gained from a lifetime of seeking the truth. My hope is that this conversation reminds you of the extraordinary potential each narrative holds and inspires you to share your own stories as they too have the power to shape the world. Liz, this is a different sort of interview because it's the interviewer interviewing the interviewer and it's something I've been looking forward to because not often that I do get to sit with someone who is so esteemed as you and has done such a wonderful job in journalism for so many years. So I want to start at the beginning. You grew up as a dairy farmer's daughter on Oxley Island, which is mid-north coast of New South Wales. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, Yes, I can. Um, That was uh, a product of the 50s. The dairy farm I was on was a generational farm on a small island in the mouth of the river. But it kept us quite isolated, but uh, but a strong community. Uh, we had a school, uh, we had a hall, we had churches, we had a little post office, all that sort of stuff. Uh, at some stage, I was like one of three kids in my class. So it was quite a, you know, uh, unique upbringing, uh, an era of no social media, uh, not even a television actually was in our house. Uh, we we had radio as our communication uh, outlet, but uh, it was it was a, a time that I don't think we'll ever see again. Just because you know uh, the world has changed, 
You got your first taste of religion when you came to meet some nuns and and you did confession. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, religion was uh, seeped into my soul from birth. I come from a very strong Catholic family. In fact, we were Ryans. Uh, That might give it up. (laughs) That's a very Catholic name from Ireland. Catholicism was part and parcel of our lives. We would do Mass every Sunday and, you know, Stations of the Cross around, you know, all those uh, religious celebrations we did. Confirmation, First Confession, Communion, all those sorts of things were part and parcel of my upbringing. And I had nuns and priests in the family. Uh, So I was quite used to the presence of uh, religion in its various guises uh, under our roof. And how did you find that? Uh, fine. I, I, it was absolutely normal for me, but it very quickly occurred to me that uh, there were some uh, contradictions, if you like, uh, mm. and that started out uh, just by having an uncle who was a priest who would come to our little farming community to say Mass, but he would stay with us the night before and um, there's a particular story I tell in the book about you know, just barely eight or nine and I'm into, uh, I've got to go to the little box in the corner of this very tiny church to um, say confession because confession is what you had to do before mass started because you couldn't have communion unless you confessed all your sins. And I dared to suggest I didn't have any, (laughs) have any sins. And uh, my good uncle um, shouted at the very top of his voice that I indeed had that I'd been fighting with my brothers. And it was a moment where I just thought, even then at that age, I thought, wow, that that seemed so inappropriate somehow, so so out of proportion, so strident, stern, harsh for a child. And it stayed with me. I wonder for you, you know, when I'm reading your beautiful new book, your memoir, I'm Liz Hayes, it seemed like you when TV did become a part of your life and, you know, you mentioned radio, you were enamoured by that in a sense. You had this feeling that maybe you didn't know the exact path, but there was something within that that you liked that has obviously led to the journey that you are currently on and have been for majority of your life. What was it about that that you saw, you became enamoured with? Uh, Look, I think it was our form of communication. So, look, we're on a dairy farm. The radio's on even as we're milking cows because Mm. (laughs) the the news would come on. Uh, My dad loved the news. But also uh, music, my father had decided, was great. The cows loved a bit of music to milk too. I think he might have been vaguely right. But uh, And then (laughs) after dinner at night, we would sit and listen to the radio. And I used to be thinking, wow, where's that voice come from? The technology was very, I couldn't even get my head around that. But I just listening to uh, voices from the outside and a world that I couldn't see uh, and I had no sense of because I'm on a tiny little dairy farm in the middle of nowhere really. But it, it, I guess it piqued my interest and I felt there's something out there. Mm. There's something I want to know more about and maybe it's sort of just seeped in under the door in that way. And then, of course, television did come into my life. And what was it about the news? I think 
understanding what else was happening in the world. Mm. We were we were seriously an isolated family, and, it, and there was no our community was the immediate community, uh, and there was no sense of missing out, it, but it was a sense of understanding we were just a small part of a, a greater world. And that did occur to me when I was quite young because I would hear these stories from somewhere. I mean, hearing about JFK being assassinated, well, who was he, you know, and why, why would somebody do that? And where's America? And oh, he's, you know, so all those events start to just inform you. You start to, you know, even the Vietnam War was something that I started to hear about and think about. And war was a concept that was very uh, alien to me. I couldn't quite understand why would people want to kill each other like that. Mm. But I started to started to understand the world and how it, it, it was, uh, what was happening in it, I guess. You obviously had a curious mind, which, you know, not everyone does. And I wonder for you, is it something like when you reflect on your upbringing, you know, is it something that your mother or your father would kind of talk to you about? Would you ask them questions? Because this is before the internet. You're not just Googling the answers. I wonder how did you find out then what war was? And, you know, you seem to have these like big questions. Did you manage to get answers to them? Well, in the best way that my parents could give me answers, mm. yes, because that's really where it came from. There were newspapers that would arrive yes. and I would understand, you know, I wouldn't be that kid going through the newspapers reading the, the stories necessarily, but I was hearing stories. My parents probably tried to explain as best they could to a, a child what was happening and why. I do remember coming home one day from school because I've been thinking about it as I was walking home, going, oh, I want, how can we stop that war? And I turned up the dairy to help, you know, which is part of the chores of a kid on a dairy farm. And I said to Dad, Dad, I reckon I know how to end that war. And I, re I recall him looking at me thinking, hey, why does this child, why is she worried about a war? Mm. I could sense that from him, but B, that smile on his face, which was, well, Good for you <laughs> for coming up with a way to stop the war. What was the way? I have no idea. I think I decided that, you know, somehow or other everybody had to go and have a chit-chat <laughs> to get over it, like they hadn't already done something like that. But, you know, it's just yes. it was a very simplistic why, you know, uh, they were questions that I was asking myself even at yeah. that very young age, yes. It's an interesting thing, that curiosity, because, you know, having kids myself, there's always that, like, how much do you say when they're little and you don't want to scar them at the same time? This is quite upsetting, but we were in the coffee shop the other day, my eight-year-old daughter and I were just standing waiting, you know, for hot chocolate and coffee and the paper was there and she can read, but she is eight. She said, mum, what, what does it mean that someone was wrapped? R-A-P-E-D. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what that means. And, I, you know, I just, at that moment, I just did not know what to answer and I wasn't going to tell her the truth. And I thought to myself, it's just, they could just grow up so fast. Like kids have to grow up so fast sometimes because <laughs> at the same time you do want to protect them. But I wonder how you have kind of dealt with that. I know that I had a very innocent life because I, we did not have social media. 
There was no such thing as a computer. The access to what was happening in the rest of the world really came from those limited outlets of radio, newspapers, and then eventually television. Even television then is not like today. And I do think social media has exposed young mm. children so quickly to the 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 world in and, and portrayed in a, a skewed way even. So I I feel blessed that I've had this innocence. I was allowed this innocence for so long. It took me ages to really, um, and maybe that was part of um, my problem when I arrived in the, the real world of, you know, uh, television and journalism. It, it was a bit shocking, I think, to get a grip on just the breadth of things that do occur in life. And I had been, my my view had been fairly narrow. I think I was lucky because I, that's why I view my childhood as idyllic because it wasn't interrupted by anything too nasty at all. Yes, I, I recall losing grandparents and I remember death being something that I had to understand. Cows were birthing, so I sort of got got an understanding of that. Um, I knew, you know, droughts and and floods and hardship in that regard. Uh, my parents were, I would think, today they'd be called, you know, Aussie battlers, but they never thought that. Uh, they never gave a, gave a sense of battling at all. So uh, I had I had touchstones of you know yeah. sadness and happiness and uh, all all of those things that you should probably get a hold of as you get older, but um, nothing to the sharpness that you're talking about. Rape would not be a word that I would have heard until I got much, much older or to even understand what that meant. And that, you know, that's a good and a bad thing. Uh, I don't want any child to have an understanding of anything like that until maybe much older when you need to know. Yes. But the need to know is getting younger and younger. So that's part of your issue, I imagine. Yes, young children. You obviously went to, in 1986, become the co-host of the Today Show. And in 1996, you joined 60 Minutes as a correspondent. I want to ask you, why do you think storytelling is so important? I think we're better people for knowing other people's stories. Uh, I'm a better person for knowing other people's stories. I'm much, much, uh, a much kinder, caring human being, I think, for being exposed to others' stories. I'm not the judgmental person I might have been or could have been. Um, I uh, now can appreciate and did obviously quite quickly appreciate who I am the lottery of life, uh, where I was born, the parents I was blessed to have, uh, the family situation I was in. I think storytelling is important for us all to understand our fellow human beings, why they do the things they do and how we should approach that. I think that is all part of being a human being and, and to not hear how others are and live, I don't think makes us any better. It's interesting because after I did the research for this interview, I wrote a piece about the power of storytelling and something that came up in my writing was the fact that when we hear shared stories, we also don't feel so alone. We know that other people are kind of battling the same things that we potentially are and that even if there are big celebrities or 
businessmen or whoever we may look up to because they have wealth and fame, that it's not always easy. And I think being in a job like yours, the power of storytelling just makes the world seem not as big. That um, not being alone is a really a big thing. I think when people understand that just other people caring can make it, it, things feel so much better, but other people understanding, uh, having ex- shared experiences, that always makes people um, who have suffered anything um, feel not so alone. I think that's really important. To, that that, and it's also great for letting you know that it's okay. There's every chance that something good will follow Mm. because when you hear other people survive, come through, um, just how they do things, I think that's really a, a, a vital role in storytelling. I think that's really a good thing to do. You went obviously from, as we mentioned, the Today Show to 60 Minutes, so I would say like a lighter kind of breakfast show in a sense to a far heavier, very serious journalistic role when you are a correspondent on 60 Minutes. And I wonder what made you want to do that move? Well, first of all, the Today Show back then was actually quite news-oriented. It's probably changed in its style now. But back then, you know, and I was working with a great co-host, Steve Levin, who was a newsman through and through. Uh, So we did touch on all sorts of subjects and that was a great start because I'd been, you know, the print journalist and I had been to Channel 10 as in the newsroom and Channel 9 in the newsroom, but stepping into the Today Show was a totally different thing because I'm on camera uh, daily, but also I was forced to do interviews. They're live and in a short period of time, so you need to cut to the chase yes. and get get to the basics. And that's a skill in itself, but also for people to feel okay about that because, you know, um, I, I don't want anyone to feel like they're being rushed in or rushed mm. out. You know, I want them to feel like they've, they've that was a worthwhile experience. Then I, of course, um, 60 Minutes came up. The truth is I was probably ready for that next step, but I was also, I felt I had been scrutinised so heavily in the media as well that I I thought I'm going to get my face off this camera. This everyday exposure is not good mm. for me. And I actually did see 60 Minutes as a place to go and still be the journalist I would hope to be but not be that daily fodder and get lost in the big wide world. And, and you know, it worked. It it was a good thing for me to do. I felt very blessed to be given that opportunity. But my psychology, as much about the opportunity to do something, you know, to see this, be paid to go around the world and tell these extraordinary stories was also to get me off that daily grind of mm. becoming that person that was now subject to just random daily headlines that I thought were dehumanising ultimately. Mm. How did you move through that? The scrutiny is um, that's that's character building. <laughs> it's for and you ask anybody, and everybody will say, "Well, you know, that's what you chose to do, and that's how it is." But it doesn't mean that you're not going to be affected by it. I got through because I had some very good people around me when the chips were down, when I was feeling truly quite alone, um, and also that I I couldn't I, I, I felt. 
I was being viewed as some sort of failure personally because of uh, my personal life, uh, because I'd had a couple of marriages. The people who held me in good stead were mum and dad. Those mm. people who reminded me of my my core values, who I am, and why it's okay to have chosen badly sometimes or just to have got it wrong, I guess. I think they bolstered me. They picked me up and, you know, dusted me down. And I think those people, people like my mum and dad, were the people who reminded me to take everything out uh, from that's coming in that's negative and and don't let that come back in again because it's bringing you down. Mm. Just try and remember that you're okay. There's there's nothing particularly bad. There's nothing bad about you ultimately. So I had to I had to go dive deeply and find me because I was getting lost. I think in in the scrutiny and the, the you know the headlines and anything else that wanted to come up and give me a slap. And that's holds me together even to this day, yes. Because, I mean, I can only imagine how hard it would be that the media's writing things about you and then I assume, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, you start to believe that maybe everyone thinks that, which I'm, they certainly wouldn't. And so you start thinking that about yourself. So they're almost writing your story. But then you have to go on breakfast TV every day and put on a smile when you probably feel like just taking a couple of weeks off and being by yourself. I mean, how do you do that? Oh, like everyone else who I have plenty of colleagues who have to go through this, friends that go through this. You just have to. And I think that's that's part of the, it's the self-belief and, and not in a, hopefully a skewered way. It's just that belief that, okay, look, I'm just going to do this. I actually found work quite a positive thing for me to do. It was a great thing for me to have this job at this most peculiar hour, but I had also good people with me. Um, Steve Philippin was an excellent person to sit beside, you know, when things were not great. A sense of purpose helped enormously. I would not like to be left wallowing in my own thoughts for too long. I think it's important to just still have purpose and it's not easy, I know, but to just just keep moving forward because I can see why people lapse, fall backwards. Yeah. It, it can weigh you down. It's interesting because you actually write in your book, you talk about celebrities and I would assume that obviously after all of this, you have gotten a lot of empathy for people in the public eye. And you say, during my many years of holding 60 Minutes microphone, I would find myself talking to a vast number of famous people and the stars of Hollywood for me were the most challenging to interview. I felt many stars viewed the media with a level of disdain, unless of course they're in control of what was being reported, which kind of makes sense after what you're talking about. But you actually then go on to tell a story about Hugh Grant. It's a love-hate relationship, I think, with um, those kinds of interviews because they're transactional quite often. And what I mean by that is they've come to promote something and uh, they want, that's part of their deal, but often they don't want to do it anyway. So they don't really want to participate. They get very agitated and angry and, you know, and everything gets, you know, cloistered and before you know it, it's just not a nice experience for either. And you, I, I would prefer people just not, do it because if I don't if I don't really want to talk to you, I should probably just not do it. But at the time, uh, Hugh Grant 
had um, just been excoriated for his own personal um, indiscretion. You know, he'd had a night with a prostitute, got picked up in LA, had his mug shot on the, you know, and then we we were to turn up to do an interview with him for his latest film. And I felt, I felt his pain a bit. He turned mm. up uh, unescorted. He didn't seem to need a, a tribe of people around him. I could feel he'd been beaten somewhat. I had to ask him at least uh, reflect upon that and I didn't particularly want to do it because I I knew he must feel terrible. My job was to see if he'd like to say something about it. He did. Uh, we got through it and moved on. But I thought, wow, you know, that was, that's worldwide pain he suffered. And yes, you know, I'm sure he wished he'd never done that and he'd made a mistake or maybe he doesn't think he made a mistake. It doesn't matter. The, the I could see he's just like you and me. He's, yes. he's a human being and that's really trips me up with these kinds of interviews because as much as I might want to be um, frustrated, I, I get it. I really do get it. These are great jobs to have, but the downside can be this, you know, exposure and scrutiny. Yeah. When it doesn't go your way, it's never fun. That's why you have to make a decision, I guess, and you have to cop it on the chin, to be honest, uh, if you want to hang around. How much time, like as a 60 Minutes reporter, if you're doing celebrity interviews, and I know some are like, you know, you go behind the scenes with them and you tell a lot of stories in your book, but how long, I would assume you're getting a decent amount of time with them. You would assume. <laughs> uh, but to be honest, some some people, and it's changed over the years. Yes. Because of the scrutiny has become so much greater. You know, once upon a time, you could spend a day with a celebrity or a Hollywood actor or whoever and, and you know, be at home with them, go whatever. I mean, Billy Joel I did recently and, uh, you know, that man took me in his car, drove around his, you know, backyard basically behind the scenes at his concert, in front of a, the concert. I mean, he was a generous personality. So that that was a couple of days actually we had with Billy Joel. Yes. You might find yourself with, well, we always ask for about an hour at least to sit down and have a conversation. But you might get half an hour. Mm. You know, and and it might be at the, this might be an interview that's come at the end of a day of interviews and they're over it. <laughs> they're really over it. <laughs> and you've arrived and you've got a, the world's longest list of questions you want to get through and you can just see it on their face. You can just go, oh, God, this is not what they feel like. They want to go straight to the bar. <laughs> I've had that at times as well, so I find this fascinating. How do you deal with that? Like how do you still make the interview good and try and like lift their spirits? Do you have like a technique that you use or? <laughs> no, I don't have a technique, but I guess what you're trying to do is connect with them. Yeah. I, I always like to look them in the eye. Yeah. I think looking pe- at people and uh, I think in, in interviewing, I always tried to not have to look at my questions too much. I already had done my research. I already knew kind of where I wanted to go. So I wanted to look at them and listen to them. Unless I needed to do quotes and stuff, I found that that eye connection is really strong. It's a really strong, and they can see, yes, hopefully, where you are coming from. And you can see them too. Absolutely. And you can read them. You can yeah. tell by their body language. You can see if it's time to sh- change gears shift, move back, 
go forward, yeah. um, stay a little longer. You know, those are, that's experience and you would know that very much by now. And I think that that's all it is, is saying, I know you've done this all bloody day and you don't want to do it again, but I'll try and make this as good as we can. And I'll try, I'll just try and connect with you. I mean, you mentioned that you do research because I wonder, you know, everyone's different. I do all my own research. Like, yes, I have producers, but that's just something I feel like naked if I was to go into an interview without doing research. But I do know some people that do not do research. What is your style of prep before you interview? I could not imagine not researching. I can't, uh, and I learned that back at the Today Show particularly. Now, I might have only had time for about three or four questions, but if somebody had given, said something that I didn't know, I didn't, I, I never wanted to be in a position to say, where did that come from? I didn't know about that. That would be the worst thing for me. I had to be across as much as I could so as I was prepared for something out, out of nowhere. I think... I think it's good, great respect too, to to show that you have um, you have done your best to know as much as you can about the person you're about to sit in front of, and uh, and also you know the purpose of why you're there, mm. you know why you've turned up to do this interview, um, you know what you hope to achieve, what what your story is going to be. And I'm presuming you're exactly the same. You know the kinds of questions yes. you want to ask. You know what you're hoping to hear. So uh, research is, it, that's that's like having a shower in the morning. Yes. <laughs> You've got to clean your teeth and have a, have a shower and you may, you know, put on the clothes that are appropriate for the day. If you're going yeah. in the jungle, you know, put your hat and whatever. You know, my point is that that's just 101. In the book, you talk about, you know, a lot of different times on 60 Minutes, but one thing that really stood out to me that I have been interested in asking you is about evil and, and the fact that are some people evil and it seems that you have come to meet some people that are because there are a lot of heavier stories that you've told. And it's funny because there's one in particular that I, I remember watching this on 60 Minutes. It was with this girl, well, the girl had passed away, well, she'd been murdered and you were talking to Elisa Baker who married her father and you were talking to her, sorry, from jail. And you actually say in the book that there was an overwhelming amount of evidence on her and the records placed her at the location where Zara's body parts would ultimately be found and she still didn't budge within you talking to her. And by the end, you say, I'd experienced Baker's best, her smiles, her caring eyes, her contorted face and the slivers of tears. Remorse, only this. I wish things would have been different. Human beings, all of us are complex. Never in a million years did I believe that Alyssa Baker was going to admit that she was the woman the court had deemed her to be, not to us as I suspect not even to herself if she did. She would probably fall apart. I tried hard to not let Zara's murder affect me, but often on assignments like this, it's very difficult. Can you tell us about that story that you covered? So her dad had met uh, Elisa Baker online. He was a single dad um, and he obviously was taken by this opportunity to find new love and he went to America and took... Um, Zara with him. 
Uh, he's very, it seemed to me, he was very connected to his daughter. His daughter really mattered to him. He was hoping, I believe, for a better life uh, for him and hopefully for Zara as well. Alyssa Baker, I think uh, it turned out this was going to be her seventh um, marriage. She hadn't actually got divorced from the last person. She was never truthful. I feel just a, a, quite a fraudulent human being. Clearly, at some stage, she decided to murder Zara Baker, this little girl. What I couldn't get over was the decision and this is a really hard thing to speak about on a pod- podcast, but the decision to cut her into little pieces, mm. uh, a, a, a decision by someone who was a mother herself um, to ch- chop up a child and put her into bags and hide those body parts out in the bush. And I, I can accept you, things can happen and terrible decisions can be made, but I can't understand why you could do that as your next step to conceal your crime. And I found it really hard to look at someone who had done that. And why I felt she would could never admit that to herself is I imagine, and I could be absolutely wrong, but I imagine even she knows that that's that's an indescribable thing to do. And to hang on to I didn't do it or is that that denial is saving her almost from looking at herself and saying, who am I? Why, why would I have done that? And the answer is not good. So I imagine that's why she could never, ever make that admission, I imagine, um, also because, you know, she has a personality trait that obviously has learned to manipulate and never uh, take responsibility. That was really hard to look at someone who mm. could do that and and to uh, uh, a child who, such an innocent party, that's indescribable to me. How does it feel to sit with someone like that? Not good. <laughs> Not good at all. I guess I was looking for an explanation or an understanding. I I was never going to get it from her, but I guess I did get an explanation or an understanding because of that sense that I got her defiant denials and that was how she's going to deal with this. So that I think that informed me more about her than I realised. I went there, but she had agreed to do this interview. We went all the way uh, there to America to interview her. So I presumed she was, and she had pleaded guilty because it was a plea deal, so she didn't get the death penalty. So I thought, okay, she's open to having uh, some conversation at some level. And her lawyer had told her the evidence was overwhelmingly against her. In other words, (laughs) your chances of avoiding the death penalty are minimal unless you plead guilty. I thought there was a chance of getting an explanation, even if we didn't like it. It Mm. would give us a window into her soul. But uh, as time went on during this interview, it just became clear that this is somebody that wanted to manipulate me and um, just tell me another lie. Mm. So that was frustrating, uh, but uh, not entirely unexpected, I guess. You sat with Evil on many occasions and you talk about a story to do with the Catholic Church and 
there was actually the federal police and a lot of other people were involved when you uncovered a pedophile. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Because that was like a big triumph for 60 Minutes and for yourself. Uh, look, it it was the capture of the most wanted man in Australia at the time. He was a pedophile called Robert Dolly Dunn. Uh, and we had received a tip off that he was in Honduras, that he had escaped. He, he knew he was a wanted man. He'd made some admissions. He knew there were some videotapes that he'd taken uh, of his, his abusive children, young boys. It was a simple case of the Australian Federal Police saying they didn't have the resources, basically, to be able to go there and hunt him down. And he's in a country where there wasn't an extradition treaty. Nobody was really interested in hunting, go looking for this 50-odd-year-old Australian, you know, who may or may not be guilty or something. You just could see the the resources uh, required were substantial. So we decided, we got the tip off to... Um, that he was in Honduras. And we knew that his passport was coming up for renewal. We knew he probably wouldn't do that, (laughs) that he probably will stay in Honduras. So we sent a producer, Melanie Morningstar, great name, and uh, she could speak the language. And she just basically, uh, for us, got on buses and just went from village to village. And she got onto his trail. But in the middle of this, our executive producer at the time said, costing a bit of money. I'm not sure we can keep this up. And uh, unbeknownst to him, we did keep it going because Melanie was certain she would be on his trail. She got him, she found him, but she couldn't do much about it except tell us. So she had to send through, we had to lure him into a meeting so she could get pictures. So she could then satellite those pictures across to us to confirm with the AFP it was him. Which we, which we wow. did, and they were they go yes that's him. So then we have to decide how we're going to get him. So sixty minutes now becomes part of this police investigation, uh, which was a bit tricky for them. I understand. Uh, so it, it involved the American authorities, the Honduran authorities, the Australian authorities. Uh, so we go over, and then we have to come up with a plan of how to lure him to us so the police can grab him, but also we get our story, I guess. The reason I found that such a compelling story was I was just a small cog in that wheel um, and I felt very privileged in a way to be able to experience that because that was 60 Minutes, the the power of the media. Yes. uh, The power of the media was that we could afford to go there and also some other media colleagues had originally found him, uh, I think he was in Southeast Asia. So they had got a picture of him, uh, I think it was one of the newspapers. Uh, So, you know, as a media, we can do things sometimes that others can't. And and when we got him, it was a moment where we felt good about having done something very, very decent. Of course, we blew our trumpet a bit and (laughs) said, you know, we we got him. But um, having said that, we we did use our resources in a in a way that I felt very good, and I think that the the police were pretty happy about it as well. It's an amazing, amazing story that you were able to. I know you're a small cog in that wheel, but that you're able to be part of that and then put this man in jail that had done such heinous crimes. I mean, that just shows the power of what you do. But unfortunately, things don't always go to plan. And I want to talk to you about a story of one of your colleagues who got put in jail, which 
most of Australia does remember Tara Brown and her crew when they went over to Lebanon and they were trying to get back some kids that had been taken by their dad uh, who said he was taking them, I think, on a holiday and then never brought them back to their Australian mum and they'd been, um, I think they'd separated or divorced. I mean, they had to go to prison. How does that affect you? Well, in many respects, it's not my story to tell because I wasn't Mm. there. But what I can tell you is it was a terrible moment. We've done these, I've done these kinds of stories too where parents are desperate. Their children are stolen uh, and taken from them and we look at how we can go about telling that story. For us, uh, sitting watching our colleagues go to jail was incredibly painful and difficult. Mm. We were obviously criticised and uh, and we understood that. We had to just keep pushing forward, just had to keep going, keep going and hope that a resolution would be found. But uh, that was a really difficult, difficult time, uh, difficult for the program and difficult for us as colleagues because in the end, you know, when we do travel the world uh, as journalists, whether we go to a war zone, and we've seen just recently journalists die all the time Mm. in the job. We take risks, but sometimes we we can make wrong decisions. We can find ourselves in trouble. And this was an occasion where there was not much we could do except just hope we could come to find a resolution. But it was hard because I think the intention was good. Yes. The intention was not bad. Um, The execution perhaps was not, is where we uh, could have done better. But the intention was always to try and help a mum in this situation. And they are difficult. They are really difficult stories. And uh, for both mothers and fathers, they're really difficult stories um, to find yourself in and to try and tell uh, because they're so emotionally fraught as well. And when you insert yourself in that that scenario, it's, uh, it's not easy, not easy at all. Do things change after that? Like, do procedures change? I know here when there's been, it's more sort of to do with radio, but when things have gone very wrong and things change drastically after that, I wonder for you, did things change? I think what changed was we had to look in, inward, yeah, and we had to say, we had to pinpoint what we did wrong, where we went wrong, what we should not do again, how we should do things differently. But the desire to tell stories, difficult stories and stories that carry a bit of risk with them hasn't changed, mm. but we we are not good if we don't stop and go, okay, let's determine what we should not do again, what we should do better again, what is reasonable and unreasonable in terms of risk-taking. Uh, yes, so we did absolutely have to examine ourselves and make decisions about what we do next time, how we go about this. I, I would think we would be not a, good, uh, not a good program if we didn't do that. Obviously, we talked about being in the public eye, which you have been for many, many decades. And many years ago, you found yourself with someone who is, was a, well, is a stalker because they still stalk you. How did that come about and, and how do you deal with that, Liz? 
Well, one of the things I need to say is that somebody who's obsessive, that's not rare. People do become obsessive about people they see on the television and sometimes you can't get rhyme or reason for that. I don't really wish to speak about the person but it's obvious how these things happen. It's because they, you're seen on television, or in my case, on television, and you become public somehow. Somebody becomes fixated or has a certain belief about you. For me, it started at the Today Show, and it had to be dealt with, actually. The court system had to intervene. But, of course, it's a tricky business. And my point of even mentioning it was to explain how it impacts you. And how it impacted me was I I hadn't felt fearful at all before. I hadn't thought about somebody potentially wanting to get closer to me than I might want them to. I hadn't really thought that process through or when that might happen. And uh, and because of uh, certain decisions the person in my life was making, um, they turned up at my parents' home and came looking for me in various places. But uh, I suddenly felt very frightened. I suddenly became super alert, particularly at night time. I felt felt quite all right with people around me during the day and work and whatnot. But at night time, I would become, like I'd be double locking those doors, I'd be checking those windows, that sort of stuff. Uh, And um, found that I didn't much like being at home alone, which is what I had to be um, at that time in my life for a few, for a certain period of time. So I just, it, and, you know, I, it meant security became part of my life. I had to, security came and stayed at my house sometimes. And, but, and you do say, you do say to yourself, oh God, I'm just, this is all getting out of proportion. It's not that bad. You know, it's all that sort of, you, you spend a lot of time trying to just get back on an even keel. But it does steal from you. It does it does take from you just a sense of security. And it's not it's it's not a great way to, it's not a great way for anyone to live. But I try not to let it overtake me. I, I did for a little while. I think it did dictate what I mean by take over. It did dictate what I did and where I went for for a while, longer than I would like to admit. But I, I'm hoping that that's no longer the case. But there are, you know, it, it, there's a hangover from that that scenario. And particularly, I think, as a woman, you know, you do, you do feel vulnerable. You, you do know how easy it is to feel vulnerable. You say the hardest story to tell is your own and your beautiful dad passed away a few years ago and there came to be what you realised a failing in in the hospital, in the in the regional hospital. There was medication that wasn't given to him and other bits and pieces. And this was a story you then had to tell. Can you tell us about that time? It is a story that I never expected I would have to tell. And when I say have to tell, I felt I had to yeah. tell it. It's not a story that had to be told, but I felt Mm. I had to tell it because, and the reason I felt I had to tell it was not just because this happened to my dad. It was because as we sat waiting for my father to pass away and having learned that he hadn't received this medication he should have received and other people came to me, doctors, nurses, paramedics, other families made contact. I mean, it was just it became clear that this 
that my father had experienced was an issue for so many other people. And indeed, sometimes uh, I don't want to compare <laughs> tragedies, but sometimes I, I would go, oh, my God, that's I, my dad didn't have to go through that. That's even worse, you know. But uh, So I became very aware that where you live had an impact on the healthcare services you had. Uh, and I teamed up with a colleague, Jamel Wells, whom I came to understand her dad had been through some very similar terrible experiences from the rural hospital he was in. I guess what we wanted to do and what I wanted to do was use my voice to help others who didn't feel they had a voice and, and see if we could not shine a light on what is clearly a terrible scenario. Health generally is a, health facilities, health services are generally pretty difficult area. I, politically, I get it. Everybody understands there's, there doesn't seem to be an easy fix, but this has been going, rural people I find, by and large, big brush stroke I know, but tend not to speak up easily, tend to get on with it, tend to say, this is my lot, tend to go, well, you know, it shouldn't be like this, but what can I do? And before you know it, another decade's passed and it's still the same story and still the same horror story. And I thought well, the least I could do is to tell this story through my eyes. And, and as you know, it's a powerful way to tell a story. It's not what I wanted to do, but I knew I should and I was able to. It it was painful. It was traumatic. I still get a bit of PTSD from all of that. But I do hope that in that process, we gave people an opportunity to speak up. We did get a parliamentary inquiry as a result of that. There's an inquiry into the inquiry now. <laughs> and I don't know. Uh, I have no idea if we're going to see real change. But shame on them if we don't, because I don't think we could ring a louder bell to say this is not good enough. It's a fine line, I have to say. I appreciate it's a fine line as a journalist to buy into this story through my own personal experience. It's not something I would normally say you should do, but it's it's hard not to. It's an important story to tell. It's always an important story to tell. Whether I should have done it uh, through my own experience, I chose to do that. And I'm happy with the that I did, but I know it's not necessarily what a journalist should do. You say one of the most emotional stories that lingered with you a lot was the death of a beautiful girl who died of melanoma from using sunbeds. I remember that story clearly. And I mean, that made a difference because then now sunbeds have been banned. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, Claire Oliver was just the sweetest, sweetest, beautiful young girl who, like us all at some stage, maybe not you, Sarah, <laughs> thought that a tan was a good idea. Uh, and, of course, a tan is uh, totally unnecessary, but we'd been conditioned um, to believe a tan was a good idea. Apart from just enjoying the sunshine, um, you know, people actively sought out colouring their skin and tan, you know, tanning beds became the thing to top up the tan and Claire Oliver did that and she, her doctors were of the opinion that as a result of the tanning beds she had this melanoma which ultimately took her life and um, I went to her at her hospital bed and she asked us to come and to, so she could sort of ring this bell also. She'd already appeared in public 
because such was her determination that she shouldn't die like this and not say to others, you don't, don't do what I did or don't, you don't need to take this risk. I mean, what a brave thing to do. But anyway, when I went to her hospital bed and, and listened to her, I, I was heartbroken. It was just, it, it, it was a preventable death. It's just, it was, it was, it broke me, I must say, because of that bedside last interview. So heartfelt by her and, you know, I, uh, it, you know, it, it rattled me, I have to say. How do you deal with that? Like I know in some of the interviews that I've done, you know, the mother of, of a child that died at Sandy Hook and, you know, there's been a lot of interviews of that elk and you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about them. How do you deal with that? Do you see a psychologist or, you know, are there, how do you take care of your mental health? Mental health is really important and, and actually you don't necessarily recognise it uh, instantly. It takes a while to see that there's an impact. And I felt it also from the Lint Cafe siege hostages that I interviewed because I interviewed eight of them and I listened to all of their horror. And, and you know, that's that's could have easily been one of us, you know, that just, just pure and utter innocent people at a cafe and suddenly they're hostages. What a terrible scenario. And some felt guilty for running and others felt they couldn't leave and and of course, we know that um, an execution took place, and and we know that some of the fellow hostages died. I mean, it's just it, the whole thing is just horrendous. But one of the things that I sixty minutes was good at doing was debriefing, mm. and I out on the road because I work with a team. You know, we've got the producer, the cameraman, the sound, and we're all equals in that team. It's a really good system, and. At the end of a day shooting, everybody had seen and felt and experienced the same things as I had. We would talk it through. We would, and and I really think that we we didn't have time. We'd be out circling the earth for the four five weeks. You don't have time to ring up and go, and you should, but you don't. And but probably what saved many of us was the ability to speak to each other about what we'd seen and felt and how we thought, and all of us feeling safe to say to each other how it impacted us. Uh, and I think that that was really what helped us uh, in so many situations. And for me, yes, just speaking about it has made, I think, uh, a big difference for me too. I don't have a, a, a psychologist, but I think they're a great idea to, for those who, who can afford to and want to and should. These are this is part and parcel of what I think is good mental health practice these days, particularly as in journalism. How has meaning and purpose changed your life? Oh, I think meaning and purpose is who we are. <laughs> to roll along in life must be great, but somewhere along the line, I think you do stop and go, what do I want to do here? What am I hoping to get from this? What is in a perfect world, what kind of life do I want to be living and and what impact do I want to have on others? And I think you might spend the first, you know, years of your life just doing it, <laughs> just finding your way, just, you know, galloping through, trying to, you know, figure out who, who you are and, and why you are. It gives you a sense of peace, gives you a sense of well-being generally. I think 
when you feel like you're doing something good, it, it makes you feel good. It's such a, it's, it's, it, it costs it's nothing. True. It, feel, it feels so good to feel like you've got a purpose and that you can maybe help people along the way. That's, that's a great feeling. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? Where to begin? <laughs> so many pieces of advice I might have had through the way. I think, look, you know, it comes from my mother and father, which probably just stays with me, and that is I do matter. I am important in life. I don't have to be on the television. I don't have to be anyone in particular, but we all matter. And I have to just remember that I'm a decent human being and that if I can be the best person I can be, then I'll be okay. Mm. You have to learn some resilience in life. I think that's true. I think you have to, in my, in my world, I had to take some chances. I had to find some courage and it's okay to fail. It's really okay to fail. A failing is is only true failure if you don't recognise it and go, okay, I can do better next time. What is a life of greatness to you? I think greatness to me, I, you know, I don't, I wish I had a profound answer for you, but I think for me it's really just being the best person I can be. And I'm not always going to be perfect by a long shot, but particularly as I get older, I, I'd like to think that, I can contribute in my own small way in, in making people see that we can all dream and we can all do a, you know, this, don't hold yourself back. It doesn't matter what you do in life as long as uh, it makes you feel good, you, makes you feel it's worthwhile. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care what job you have or how um, you decide life should be, as long as it makes you and somebody else feel okay and it's not harming anybody else, I'd like to think that that's, that's a reasonable thing to ask of anyone. They say that you can't be what you can't see, Liz Hayes, and you illuminated that path for me from when I was a very young girl. I was in front of my TV watching 60 Minutes, always enamoured by the way that you would interview people with such dignity and grace. So... Thank you so much for that and thank you for the beautiful conversation today. Wow, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.